Section 6 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, John Smith, Foundations of a Christian Philosophy, Part 1. In the life and opinions of Whichcote, the new movement of thought in Cambridge takes its rise. It is seen springing partly out of a fresh activity of the philosophical spirit, wearied with the aridities of the exhausted scholasticism, and quickened by the revived study of Plato, and partly out of a reaction against the religious bigotries of the time, which in their violence and intolerance had disgusted the higher minds at the universities. The religious aspect of the movement is, in the first instance, more conspicuous than its philosophical character and affiliation. Which Coates' relations to the religious parties of his time come into more direct view than his relation to the speculative influences, which, beyond doubt, he also greatly modified. In other words, he is more prominently the rational religious thinker than the Platonic philosopher. The explanation of this is easy. Religion masked every other interest in the seventeenth century. Both politics and philosophy, although they had broken the ecclesiastical yoke and were seeking emancipation, had not yet accomplished it. In order to get a hearing for themselves, they had studiously to court theology and assume a religious side, or at least to pay deference if it were only, as with Bacon, the deference of respectful distance, to what was still held to be the queen of the sciences. The philosophical attitude of Bacon is the least involved with religion. Even Descartes is more theological, and professes to hold his theories only with the approval of the church. But the most striking illustration of the dominance of the religious spirit is Hobbes himself. Essentially hostile as his writings are to the foundations of religious belief, they are everywhere pervaded with a religious tone and coloring. The Leviathan, in many of its chapters, is a perfect mosaic of scriptural quotations. The very title itself, and the titles of its several books, are biblical. It cheats the ear with religious phrases, and the solemnity of a religious purpose, which it breaks to the intelligence with its merciless logic. The difference in this respect between Bacon and Hobbes is curious and interesting. Bacon, in acknowledging the supremacy of theology, excludes it from the circle of rational knowledge and inquiry. He treats it with an assumed humility, a grand air of respect, which has a touch of condescending mockery in it. He bows it out of the court of the sciences as sacredly transcending all nature and reason. Hobbes, on the other hand, mixes his politics, philosophy, and religion inextricably together. We cannot get at the one without the other, or separate them without destroying his whole intellectual system. In this respect, Hobbes was the truer child of his age how men were to live together at all, how society was to be formed and the state constituted, were in the seventeenth century still identical with the questions how men were to live together as religious beings, what dogmas they were to profess, what mode of worship they were to observe. And so religion naturally took the front in every new movement of thought. It is to be remembered that Whichcote himself, with his friends and followers, were all clergymen of the Church of England. They were fellows or heads of colleges, they were preachers in the university. All their teaching accordingly took a religious turn. They were philosophers in the interests of Christianity. It was their instincts of rational Christian defense at once against the bigotries and the atheisms, as they believed them to be, of their time, which drove them in search of a deeper, more comprehensive, and more inspiriting philosophy. There are sufficient traces of such a philosophy in Whichcote, although they lie behind other phenomena more prominently marked. His general view of religion as a seed of a deiform nature, 
implanting and strengthening within us all lofty and pure aspirations and rationally elevating and sweetening the whole nature in communion with god is essentially platonic so also is the whole turn of his thought in its diffusive ideality his love of the abstract rather than the concrete and even his nicety of verbal and argumentative definition we are told that quote, he set young students much on reading the ancient philosophers chiefly plato and tully and plotinus close quote. Tuckney accuses him, after he came to be a lecturer at Emmanuel, of laying aside in a great measure all other studies and betaking himself to philosophy and metaphysics. The chief objection to his preaching was its moral and philosophical character in contrast to that doctrinal style which Puritans have curiously always considered to be more identical with the simplicity of scriptural truth. He, in his turn, confesses his obligations to philosophers and the good which he had got from them in the use of all those principles that derive from God and speak him in the world. He defends with some warmth and jealousy his favorite studies, but at the same time it never occurs to him to put them in front of or in place of religion. The chief point in his vindication is the consistency which he has found between them and the main points of Christianity. I have sometimes publicly declared, he says, quote, what points of religion I have found excellently held forth by them, and I never found them enemies to the faith of the gospel. The religious interest is first with him, and the philosophical only second. The speculative character of the movement becomes more prominent with its advance. The younger minds that Whichcote led and influenced are less affected by the accidental relations of religious party and the conflicts of religious dogma amidst which he himself moved, and which gave the primary bias to his teaching. They take up the same questions in their broader spiritual aspects, their more generalized and philosophical shape. John Smith is a Platonist, not only like his master, because he has found in the study of the Platonic writings certain principles coincident with his own enlarged Christian thoughtfulness, by the light of which he is able to rebuke the narrowness or expose the falsehood of those whom he designates lazy and loose Christians, but because from the beginning he has more or less taken up his line of thought from Plato or the writings of the Neoplatonic school. Moreover, the questions which occupy him are more directly philosophical. They touch those general principles or relations of thought out of which all philosophy comes, whether it takes a religious or irreligious form. The essence of divine knowledge, in what it consists, the ultimate springs of our rational and spiritual life, out of which arise respectively superstition, atheism, theism, the nature of revelation, and the true idea of righteousness. Such are the questions to which his discourses are devoted. Religious in the highest sense, they yet involve in their mere statement the primary data of all philosophy. And Smith, we shall find, handles them as a preacher indeed, for the discourses were intended for oral delivery, yet with a freedom, elevation, and amplitude of grasp, which stamps him preeminently as a Christian philosopher. Of Smith's life, unhappily, we know little or nothing. In some respects, the most remarkable of all the Cambridge school, the richest and most beautiful mind, and certainly by far the best writer of them all, he died at the early age of thirty-four. There was nothing to tell of a career so brief, and which never seems to have passed beyond the precincts of the university. He is a thinker without a biography. Two friends, John Worthington, who edited his discourses, and Simon Patrick, who preached his funeral sermon in the chapel of Queen's College, where he himself had discoursed with such marvelous eloquence, have given us some sketch of his character, but left much to be desired even in this respect. There is elevation and beauty, but also a good deal of indistinctness in the picture which they draw. 
the lines are grand but wavering and lose themselves after the manner of the time in vagueness and generality yet here and there there are touches of affection and felicity which in the case of patrick in particular break into downright bursts of tearful tenderness over the loss of so much genius and goodness quando ulum inveniant parem is the keynote of all he says and the pressure of the painful thought interrupts the flow of his panegyric with the most honest exclamations of grief Quote, who can think of his gracious lips his profitable and delightful converse his cordial love without a sigh and a tear without saying ah my father ah his glory Close quote. A recent writer has said that in all the literature of the period with which he is acquainted, he has not met with a more pathetic production than this funeral sermon. Footnote. Mr. Mullinger of St. John's College, who, in a small volume entitled Cambridge Characteristics in the Seventeenth Century, has touched, but only very slightly, upon our subject. End of footnote. Quote, the artistic skill is not great, but there is an expression of genuine feeling throughout, with an occasional outbreak of honest grief, which produces an effect above all art. This is quite true, and the fact is equally creditable to Patrick and the friend whom he and the university so deeply mourned. John Smith was a native of Northamptonshire, where his father seems to have been a small farmer. He was born at A Church, near Oundle, in that county, in the year 1618. Before his birth, Patrick says, his parents had been long childless and were grown aged. He was sent to Cambridge in 1636, and entered, as Whichcote had before him, at Emmanuel College. We would infer from this that his father, like many of his class, especially in the Midland districts of England, had Puritan leanings, and sent him to the well-known Puritan foundation to be trained in the true gospel of Protestantism. At this time Whichcote was a fellow and tutor in the college, and he is supposed also to have commenced his influence as a preacher. He was nine years older than Smith, and it is expressly stated by Worthington that he became tutor to the young and probably somewhat friendless undergraduate from Northamptonshire. This is one of the few facts embodied in Worthington's rhetorical address to the reader, prefixed to the original edition of the Discourses. It is also implied in his statement that the tutor's comparative wealth was freely given to assist his pupil. His words are, quote, I knew him, the author of the Discourses, for many years, not only when he was a fellow of Queen's College, but when a student in Emmanuel College, where his early piety and the remembering his creator in those days of his youth, as also his excellent improvements in the choicest parts of learning, endeared him to many, particularly to his careful tutor, the fellow of Emmanuel College, afterwards provost of King's College, Dr. Whichcote, to whom, for his directions and encouragements of him in his studies, his seasonable provision for his support and maintenance when he was a young scholar, as also upon other obliging considerations, our author did ever express a great and singular regard. Quote. Smith took his bachelor's degree in 1640 and his master's four years later, and in the same year in which he became master, or in 1644, he was chosen a fellow of Queen's College. The explanation given of his not having received a fellowship in his own college is that by the statutes no more than one fellow could be admitted from any one county, and that the fellowship open to a Northamptonshire graduate was filled up at the time Smith became eligible. It was at this time, our readers will remember, that Whichcote returned to Cambridge after a brief absence and was appointed provost of King's College. We have no trace of further personal relations betwixt the former tutor and his pupil, but they, no doubt, renewed their old intercourse, and it is easy to imagine the enthusiasm with which a mind like Smith's would regard Whichcote's growing influence over the youth of the university. 
smith's success again could scarcely have been less acceptable to his former teacher while the discourses which he delivered in the chapel of queens must have been among the most powerful stimulants of the higher and more expansive thoughtfulness which was rapidly springing up to the alarm of tuckany and his friends they contributed according to tillotson's biographer to raise new thoughts and a sublime style in the members of the university smith is said to have discharged his duties as tutor with great faithfulness and to have had great aptitude and ease of expression in the communication of knowledge particular mention is made of his distinction as a mathematical lecturer in the public schools his health seems to have been weak from the first and his illness was borne with singular sweetness and patience he died on the seventh of august sixteen fifty two a few months after Whichcote closed his correspondence with Tuckney, and the new movement may be said to have attained definite recognition and significance. Worthington's description of his friend throws but little light upon his character. He tells us that he might fill much paper in recounting particularly his many excellences. Yet, after all, he gives us but a very vague and indefinite impression in such sentences as the following. Quote, I might truly say that he was both a righteous and truly honest man, and also a good man. He was a follower and imitator of God in purity and holiness, in benignity, goodness, and love, a love enlarged as God's love is, whose goodness overflows and spreads itself to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. He was a lover of our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, a lover of his spirit and of his life, a lover of his excellent laws and rules of holy life, a serious practiser of his Sermon on the Mount, the best sermon that ever was preached, and yet none more generally neglected by those that call themselves Christians. To be short, he was a Christian more than a little, even wholly and altogether such, a Christian inwardly and in good earnest. Religious he was, but without any vaingloriousness and ostentation, not so much a talking or a disputing as a living, a doing, and an obeying Christian one inwardly acquainted with the simplicity and power of godliness but no admirer of the pharisaic forms and sanctimonious shows though never so goodly and specious besides being thus a truly godlike man he was possessed of quote, those other perfections and accomplishments of the mind which rendered him a very rational and learned man and withal in the midst of all these great accomplishments as eminent and exemplary in unaffected humility and true lowliness of mind to conclude, he says, he was a plain-hearted friend and Christian one in whose spirit and mouth there was no guile, a profitable companion, nothing of vanity and triflingness in him as there was nothing of sourness and stoicism. I can very well remember, when I have had private converse with him, how pertinent and freely he would speak to any matter proposed, how weighty, substantial, and clearly expressive of his sense his private discourses would be, and both for matter and language much what of the same importance and value with such exercises as he studied for and performed in public. Such are the most characteristic passages of Worthington's description in his Address to the Reader. They are hearty but featureless, and fail to bring before us any familiar image of his friend. He might have added more, he says, but in the view of the fair and lively character drawn by Patrick, he thinks this unnecessary. If some part of that character, he adds, quote, should seem to have in it anything of hyperbolism and strangeness, it must seem so to such only who either were unacquainted with him and strangers to his worth, or else find it a hard thing not to be envious and a difficulty to be humble. But those that had a more inward converse with him knew him to be one of those of whom the world was not worthy one of the excellent ones in the earth, a person truly exemplary in the temper and constitution of his spirit, and in the well-ordered course of his life. 
a life as i remember seneca doth express it somewhere in his epistles all of one color everywhere like itself and eminent in those things that are worthy of praise and imitation Close quote. the character drawn by patrick amid all its elaborate eulogy gives a more lively picture yet even in it there are touches of mere declamation which leave us very unsatisfied the tone throughout is that of the preacher moved to an unwanted height of emotion and giving too ready a flow to exaggerations of language as he recalls the virtues of his friend let us first look upon him he says quote, in his eminency dignity and worth a very glorious star he was and shone brighter in our eyes than any that he ever looked upon when he took his view of the heavenly bodies and now he shines as the brightness of the firmament and as the stars for ever and ever being wise and having turned many i believe unto righteousness he had such a huge wide capacity of soul such a sharp and piercing understanding such a deep-reaching mind that he set himself about nothing but he soon grasped it and made himself a full possessor of it he was a most laborious searcher after wisdom a living library better than that which he hath given to our college and a walking study that carried his learning about with him i never got so much good among all my books by a whole day's plodding in a study as by an hour's discourse i have got with him for he was not a library locked up nor a book clasped but stood open for any to converse with all that had a mind to learn yea he was a fountain running over laboring to do good to those who perhaps had no mind to receive it none more free and communicative than he was to such as desired to discourse with him nor would he grudge to be taken off from his studies upon such an occasion it may be truly said of him that a man might always come better from him and his mouth could drop sentences as easily as an ordinary man's could speak sense and he was no less happy in expressing his mind than in conceiving he had such a copia verborum a plenty of words and those so full pregnant and significant joined with such an active fancy as is very rarely to be found in the company of such a deep understanding and judgment as dwelt in him Whichcote's pupil it is clear had something of his own marvellous gifts as a teacher he loved to discourse his mind craved sympathy and to unburden itself of its teeming thoughts this was no doubt the secret of the enthusiasm with which his friends regarded him and of the extraordinary interest which his death excited they felt that not only a great student and thinker but a great teacher was gone one whose qualities preeminently fitted him to adorn the university and to influence its higher studies his learning as patrick phrases it quote, was so concocted that it lay not as an idle notion in his head but made him fit for any employment he was very full and clear in all his resolutions at any debates a most wise counsellor in any difficulties and straits dexterous in untying any knot of great judgment in satisfying any scruple or doubt even in matters of religion he was one that soon saw into the depth of any business that was before him and looked it quite through that would presently turn it over and over in his mind and see it on all sides Close quote. evidently a well-balanced noble intellectual nature fitted to rule in the halls of learning and to diffuse a quickening and powerful influence nor were smith's moral qualities less remarkable he had incorporated continues his eulogist quote, or insold all principles of justice and righteousness and made them one with himself so that i may say of him in antoninus's phrase he was dipped into justice as it were over head and ears he had not a slight superficial tincture but was dyed and colored quite through with it so that wheresoever he had a soul there was justice and righteousness they who knew him very well know the truth of all this 
and I am persuaded he did as heartily and cordially, as eagerly and earnestly do what appeared to be just and right, without any self-respect or particular reflections, as any man living. Methinks I see how earnest he would be in a good matter which appeared to be reasonable and just, as though justice herself had been in him, looking out at his eyes and speaking at his mouth. It was a virtue indeed that he had a great affection unto, and which he was very jealous to maintain, in whose quarrel he was in danger to be angry, and sometimes to break forth into a short passion. Here we have a genuine bit of nature. Smith was evidently a high-souled, eager, and somewhat impetuous man, easily warmed into emotion for what he felt to be a just cause, and ready to give vent to his feelings with something of passionate earnestness. He had the quick temperament which kindles at wrongdoing or folly of any kind, and which goes straight at its object without management or guile. The spirit which reveals itself by the eyes and mouth may not be a great spirit, and certainly may not always be right, but at least it is never crafty or deceitful. And in his case the diffusive expressiveness of the face was plainly the symbol of a large, liberal, and sensitively truthful soul. It is this generous aspect of his friend's character that melts Patrick as he proceeds in his description, and makes him exclaim, quote, And now what word shall I use? What shall I say of his love? None that knew him well but might see in him love bubbling and springing up in his soul and flowing out to all, and that love unfeigned, without guile, hypocrisy, or dissimulation. I cannot tell you how his soul universalized, how tenderly he embraced all God's creatures in his arms, more especially men, and principally those in whom he beheld the image of his heavenly Father. He would even have emptied his soul into theirs. Let any that were thoroughly acquainted with him say if I lie. And truly my happiness is that I have such a subject to exercise my young and weak oratory upon, as will admit of little hyperbole. His patience was no less admirable than his love, under a lingering and tedious disease, wherein he never murmured or complained, but rested quietly satisfied in the infinite unbounded goodness and tenderness of his Father, and the commiserations of Jesus Christ. He told me in his sickness that he hoped he had learned that for which God sent it, and that he thought God kept him so long in such a case, under such burdens and pressures, that patience might have its perfect work in him. And really in his sickness he showed what Christianity and true religion is able to do what might, power, and virtue there is in it to bear up a soul under the greatest loads. His humility and faith, his ingenuity, courtesy, gentleness, and sweetness are all commended in similar language. He was absorbed by religious earnestness and resolved, so he said, quote, if it had pleased the Lord of life to prolong his days very much, to lay aside other studies and to travel in the salvation of men's souls. But at the same time he was free from all devouring zeal. He called for no fire to descend from heaven upon men, but the fire of divine love, that might burn up all their hatreds, roughness, and cruelty to each other. But as for benignity of mind and Christian kindness, everybody that knew him will remember that he ever had their names in his mouth, and I assure them they were no less in his heart and life, as knowing that without these truth itself is in a faction, and Christ is drawn into a party. And this graciousness of spirit was the more remarkable in him, because he was of a temper naturally hot and choleric, as the greatest minds most commonly are. He was wiser than to let any anger rest in his bosom, much less did he suffer it to burn and boil till it was turned into gall and bitterness. If he was at any time moved unto anger, it was but a sudden flushing in the face, and it did as soon vanish as arise. Having thus described all his worth and eminency, and alluded to the last days of his friend's life, 
which passed away in a kind of sleep patrick's feelings seem to give way altogether as he breaks forth quote, have we not reason to be so sad as you see our faces tell you that we are but alas half of that is not told you which your eyes might have seen had you been acquainted with him i want thoughts and words to make a lively portraiture of him my young experience hath not yet seen to the height or the depth of these things which i have here given you a rude draught of and so my conceits and expressions must needs fall far below that excellent degree of beauty wherein they dwelt in him there is not one but will cry out with elisha o oh, the chariot of this place and the horsemen thereof o thou who wast both my safeguard and my ornament who wast a society by thyself a college in brief what a loss have we sustained by thy departure to which of us was not he dear who is there that was not engaged to him who can think himself as wise as he was when we had him the picture of mind and character raised by these grandiloquent touches is of so lofty a kind that we might be disposed to attribute it in some degree to that enthusiasm of personal friendship which often binds young university men together and makes them exalt above criticism the parts and influences of some favorite tutor or companion student this is so common that we are apt to smile at youthful eulogy knowing well that the only test of what a man is really worth and what he is capable of doing for any branch of knowledge is not the intense and frequently narrow judgment of a university but the broad and well-sifted judgment of the intellectual world many a university marvel has come to little and done little for the world's good whilst some who excited no special interest among their fellow-students have afterwards taken the lead and left their stamp upon their generation in many impresses of noble and advancing thought accordingly we turn to smith's discourses with some anxiety they are all that survive to represent his genius they first appeared in sixteen sixty under the editorship of worthington and although it was then stated by him that there were other pieces of the authors which would make another considerable volume no additional remains have ever been published end of chapter three part one